Thanks, Dennis. So the first time I heard that song was a year or two ago. I was playing with Dennis somewhere. can't even remember. But uh, we sang that song, and I thought, you know, what a great way to tell the story of the birth of Jesus. I mean, it communicates not just kind of the essential elements of the story, but it brings a lot of history and perspective to the personal experience of those who were there, right? How Joseph must have felt, right? How people, they came to pay their respects, but probably didn't even know why. How the paranoid governor, Herod, he he sent death squads to kill every male under the age of two. And the purpose and the impact of Jesus' birth. And in fact, I want to talk a little more about this idea of Jesus' birth and his mission. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, uh, if you're using the Bible in a chair in front of you, you can find it on page 973. Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors And sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you as we head into this Christmas season for the gift that you have given us. And as we read through and try to understand what you might have for us here this morning, I pray that your spirit would open up our eyes and our minds and our ears and especially our hearts to hear what you might be saying to us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we studied the opening of uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus, right? We started with the family line, the genealogy of Jesus, And Matthew, then he goes on to document the birth and the early life of Jesus and then the start of his public ministry. And Jesus begins as a homeless preacher, traveling, teaching, working miracles, and loving people right where they were. And we start to see this pattern emerging in his ministry, one of teaching and of working miracles. Now, remember what the Israelites, they were waiting for was the Messiah, right? Their savior, the one that that prophets had predicted throughout Israel's history. They were eagerly awaiting a Messiah to come and and to free them, to save them from political slavery and persecution. And his teaching and his miracle working among the common folks, they made him a hero. He had a huge following among that crowd. And Jesus, he, he took incredible care. He spent time with people. And his compassion for the crowds stood in stark contrast to that of the Jewish religious leaders. Right? They made everyday life miserable by piling on more rules, more rituals, more to-dos. And while Jesus, he had the signs of what the Jews had expected in the miracles, things didn't quite unfold how they had anticipated. Right? As Jesus, he healed and he called the marginalized, the disenfranchised. He broke down purity and ethnic and gender barriers. He encountered resistance then from the Jewish religious establishment. Because the authority of his messianic kingdom, it hadn't come with military or with political power, but with a goal to overpower evil's grip within nature, in the demonic world, with disease, and most importantly, with sin. And so with all that in mind, our story then picks up in verse 9. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Okay, so it's like Jesus walking up to an IRS agent and asking him to follow him, right? I mean, we hate taxes. We probably hate tax agents now. I'm sure it was no different back then, right? I mean, taxes were unbearable back in ancient Israel, right? Israel, it was under Roman control. And the Romans, they made their mission to have their minions pay for the costs of the empire. There was a tax for everything. Income tax, import tax, export tax, crop taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, emergency taxes. If you're a fisherman, you get taxed on how many fish you'd caught. If you worked in fabrics, you get taxed on the value of the cloth or on the value of the final product. I mean, who knows? Maybe you even had to get a sticker for your camel or donkey, you know, like we have stickers for our cars these days. Or I wonder if they had yard waste stickers that they had to pay for. But tax collectors, they were absolutely hated in Jesus' day because they served the interests of Rome, right? And because they regularly charged significantly more money than was actually due in taxes. They were considered liars, cheats, traitors, extortionists, a tool of the man who conspired with the enemy. And because tax collectors, because they had repeated contact with the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people, they were considered religiously unclean and also considered among the worst of sinners. So when Jesus, he comes and he asks Matthew to drop everything to follow him, that would have been huge. And it would have been even bigger for Matthew to actually go and do it. Right Earlier, uh, Matthew writes about Jesus calling four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who were told left their nets and followed him. Now, I sometimes wonder, do you think these guys had like a plan B? You think they thought, you know, I'm going to follow this Jesus guy, but if things don't really work out, I can always go back to fishing, right? And if I'm honest, back in 2006, when I followed God's call to be here as a pastor and to drop a business career of 20 years, If I'm honest, and I don't like admitting this, but, you know, I always figured that if things didn't work out here, I could always go back to my job in sales at Oracle. But Matthew, he was a tax collector, right? And those jobs were a guaranteed, foolproof way to make piles and piles of money. And so while the first four disciples, they could have easily gone back to their jobs, there was no way Matthew was ever going to go back to his job as a tax collector. His decision was permanent, There were no hedging his bets. There was no plan B if things didn't work out. If we look at it in today's context, if the the four fishermen had jobs that were really very common in the ancient Near East, maybe the equivalent today to having a job as a cashier at maybe a Wendy's or a McDonald's. There's lots of those jobs, right? And they, they don't require a lot of technical skills or advanced degrees to get those jobs. But Matthew's job, it would have been like having a seat at the Chicago Board of Trade, Right? The seats are in big-time big demand. They're for the privilege. They're expensive. They're high-maintenance. And they're pretty hard to come by. So Matthew, he drops everything. And next, he invites Jesus and his disciples to a feast at his house. We read this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So Matthew, he invites all his pals, most of them who are likely to be outcasts, outsiders, those at the margins, and those who have been shunned by the Jewish religious establishment. 
And in the ancient Near East, just like today, sitting at the same table and eating with someone, it's a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of a relationship, of acceptance. And to a certain degree, it's condoning the actions of those who you're sitting and having a meal with. Have you ever heard of the saying that a person is known by the company they keep? And across centuries and cultures, that saying, it holds true. Companionship with tax collectors and sinners, it would have been risky behavior for Jewish religious person. At best, it might ruin your reputation. And at worst, people actually feared that these tax collectors and these low-life sinfulness might rub off on them. It might contaminate them. It might push them into the sinful life that they detested. Have you ever been in a situation maybe where you were concerned that you might be associated with people that might ruin your reputation? Right? That if, if someone saw you and you there with these people, that they might go and tell other people and you might get lumped in and labeled with a group of folks there. Or maybe you've been in a situation where you were actually afraid that the actions of that, those, that person or those people might really actually rub off on you and pull you into some behavior that is, is either illegal or just bad behavior. Well, this is exactly what many of the Jewish people would have been worried about, right? And yet we have no indication that Jesus had any second thoughts about sitting at the dinner table with these folks. So we, here we see Jesus doing way more than preaching at or lecturing repentance to sinners. He befriended them. Instead of sorting people into classifications like holy and unholy or clean and unclean or righteous and unrighteous, he gathered them together under God's grace and his love. And to be clear, Jesus, he wasn't just getting these folks together to party with them. His goal was to reach out, to heal, and to transform their lives. Well, verse 11 then introduces the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees, to the mix. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, to understand what was happening here, we need to understand two things. Who were the Pharisees and who were sinners? Let's take the easy one first, sinners. The first definition that might just pop into our heads might be um, someone who misses the mark of perfection or someone who falls short of the standard of God, right? But the original Greek for sinners means a number of things. Sinful as an absolute moral failure. One who violates God's will or law. Or one who does not keep orthodox traditions and behaviors. So I want you to hold that thought for just a second. Pharisee means separated one. And the Pharisees, they were a small but extremely influential group of guys committed to strict observance of ordinances of Judaism, things about ritual purity, right? To carry out religious duties like tithing, dietary laws, ceremonial washing, things like that. But the one thing about the Pharisees, they were all about rules. They were all about rituals and things that in their minds either made someone clean or unclean. The Pharisees, they would have never allowed tax collectors and sinners to eat with them. They would have freaked out if this would have happened. They wouldn't want to defile themselves by hanging out with those kinds of people. And so looking at first century cultural understanding of the sinners, it really would have meant anyone who didn't keep the orthodox traditions and behaviors. Defined not by the scriptures, but by the Pharisees themselves. So the Pharisees, when they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
they're really not asking a question. They're being judgmental. An actual better translation of the text might actually read, why is Jesus eating with such scum? Now, if someone calls me a pastor and a sinner, I'd say, yep, I'm a pastor, and yep, I'm a sinner. But if you call me a pastor and scum, you know, I think it's going to be on, man. I am not going to react well to that. So at that point, Jesus addresses the Pharisees, and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Makes sense. Doctors don't go to people who are healthy. They go to people who are sick. But look at that last sentence again. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus lets them know. He he said, I'm here to heal the sick. Then he challenges the Pharisees to go and understand the true essence of God's heart. When he tells them to figure out what I desire mercy, not sacrifice, actually means. Now we have to remember that the Pharisees, they are the religious elite, the most scholarly, the most studied, the most religiously well-informed. They are at the top of the religious food chain. So it would have been a huge slap in the face to them when Jesus uses this, um, this rabbinic formula, go and learn, because that phrase was used for those who actually needed to go and study some more to really understand what a text meant. It would be like me walking up today to Ch- Chicago Bears coach Lovey Smith and saying, you know, Lovey, I think you need to go back to football coach school to learn how to be a football coach. I mean, who am I to do that, Right. And just like that, for anyone to suggest that the Pharisees didn't really understand the scripture, that was an absolutely huge spiritual smackdown. And my Steve K. summary is this. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, I know, don't tell Ray I said that, okay? (laughs) Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they're missing the point, right? In their quest to follow the rules, the rituals, the obligations, they're really missing God's heart for people. They are so obsessed with following rules that they lose sight of God's care, his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion for people. And so we've gotten a glimpse into what God's heart is for discipleship. The question is, what do we do with it now? Well, to start, this story, it it depicts two conflicting and opposite religious viewpoints, right? We have the Pharisees who, they want to draw strict boundaries they, they want to pigeonhole and label people and they want to exclude them from God's grace and power. And the other one, Jesus, he throws open the doors to everyone, right? He didn't fear being contaminated by lepers or sinners, but instead he contaminated them with God's grace, with God's love, with God's power. Jesus didn't regard his holiness as something that needed to be safeguarded or protected, but instead freely given out. So that God's transforming power, it can turn tax collectors and sinners into disciples. You know, a month or so ago, I, I played a, a music gig with a band in the city for uh, an annual event. It's called the Stigma Elimination Festival. It was founded by a gay Jewish woman who helps people wrestling with itch issues that stigmatize people. In fact, I'm going to read their purpose statement to you. Working towards eliminating stigma associated with life whether it's religious, racial, disability, equality, HIV, AIDS, sexuality, all issues matter. 
We educate about stigmas. We celebrate our differences and eradicate the things that keep us apart. It was really uh, quite an eclectic mix of people that were there. But I got to say, as the evening went on, I really enjoyed getting to know the people that were there. People who were struggling, just like we all do, with a variety of things. We were able able to have open and honest conversations about what we believed, about what excites us, what worries us, and just to be real with each other. And I'll be honest, uh, some of the conversations made me a little bit uncomfortable. But you know what was the most remarkable about that? The lack of judgment. I didn't feel a single ounce of judgment from anyone there. These folks, they came as they were. They cared for each other. They listened to each other. They engaged them right where they were at. And at one point, I stood back, and I kind of just looked at this gathering, and I thought, you know, this might be the equivalent gathering of Matthew's motley crew of tax collectors and sinners, at least according to our religious elite of today. But I also thought that this celebration will be the kind of party that Jesus would have come to. Jesus, he wasn't afraid what other people thought of him. He wasn't worried about who he associated with. He was out in the fray. Right Throughout the Gospels, where did Jesus spend the majority of his time? He was out in the markets. He was in people's homes. He was in community areas where people gathered together. He met people in ordinary, everyday places. So if we're striving to live more as Jesus did, then what should we do? We should get out into the mess, jump into the fray. We should be in ordinary people's lives in meeting them exactly where they are. Because friends, that's where relationships are developed. And then that's where ministry can begin. Who in your modern day group of tax collectors and sinners, who, who is it that you're hanging out with in that group? Are you hanging out with ordinary, everyday people? Are you spending any time with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your classmates? Are you spending any time with those on the fringe, with those on the margins? It's hard to do. And I have to be intentional about it. I've coached Miles' baseball team for a number of years. I'm coaching a YMCA basketball team. I have a bunch of musicians that I gig with and that I hang out with. I spend time with teachers and administrators and, school, and students at schools along North Avenue. We should ask ourselves, what does it look like to love people just because God loves them? Spending time with them, loving on them, listening, talking to them, caring for them. It doesn't necessarily mean we condone behaviors or beliefs that they may have that we don't agree with. And where do we look for approval, right? Do we look to God or do we look to other people? Because if we're more concerned with God's approval than the approval of others, it'll free us up to hang out with people who are messy, people who don't have it all together, people who don't necessarily believe what we believe. I mean, yeah, we still need to be wise. We need to be careful that we don't fall into sinful behavior. But I'm suggesting that if Jesus is at the center of our lives, and if we're really striving to live more and more like he did, then we'll be spending time in the mess of life, just like he did. And then we need to ask ourselves, are we really living by grace? I mean, really. Listen, virtually all world religions, they believe that acceptance by God, it's dependent upon keeping a set of rules. Whatever the faith, there seems to be this universal understanding that God is good, that's true, that people are bad, 
It's also true. And that in order to approach God, we need to somehow uh, measure up to his standards. And that's not true. And while that may be the spoken or the unspoken rules made up by humans, that has never been the case with the God of the Bible. In fact, the opposite is true. And Christianity, it stands alone in this respect. Theologian A.M. Hunter, he summed it up this way. The new thing in Christianity is not the doctrine that God saves sinners. It is the assertion that God loves and saves them as sinners. This is the authentic and glorious doctrine of true Christianity at any age. I want you to think for a second. What was the most amazing miracle that Jesus ever did? Got one in your head? All right, I'm going to name a few just off the top of mine. Turning water into wine, healing a blind man, healing a bunch of lepers, healing a woman suffering from bleeding for many years, healing a man who couldn't walk. He walked on water. He calmed a huge storm. He raised a young girl from the dead. And he raised Lazarus after he'd been dead and in a tomb for a few days. I mean, those are some pretty miraculous things, wouldn't you agree? However, I would suggest that while they are all outstanding, none of these is the most amazing miracle. You want to know what tops the list? It's Jesus' ability not just to heal physically, but his ability to heal sin. If sin alienates us from God, what can heal that rift? Well, if we listen to the Pharisees, they would say the way back to God is, is to follow a strict observance of religious law, right? Of rules, of rituals, of do's and don'ts, of how to perform better so that God will accept us. But that's not the message of the gospel. The gospel of grace, the very gospel message of good news that Jesus ushered in when he arrived on the scene, it wasn't based on anything that we've done or that we can do. It's based solely on what God has done. The Pharisees and frankly much of organized religion has us reaching, striving, trying to reach up somehow to grab onto God's coattails so that we can somehow earn his favor. But God, he sent the great physician, Jesus himself, and instead he reached down to us. He sent Jesus into the mess, into the fray, into this dysfunctional world that we live in. And through Jesus' birth, through his ministry, of grace through death and resurrection, we have the ultimate Christmas gift, the gift of eternal life. Remember the chorus of the song Dennis sang a few minutes ago? Like a stone on the surface of a still river, driving the ripples on forever, redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And friends, every one of us in this room, we're all impacted by sin. Through sin, by missing the mark of perfection, we are all separated from God. But Jesus, the great physician, the great healer, he's arrived to come and restore our relationship with God, our Father. And it's as simple as believing it. There's no rules, no rituals. It's a free Christmas gift from a loving father in heaven. And if you've already accepted this free Christmas gift, 
then consider what God may be asking from you in terms of discipleship, in terms of following him, of getting out and getting into the mess. And if you're really living out a life of grace, both in your own life and in the grace and the mercy that you extend to other people. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you haven't yet asked Christ into your life. What better time than the Christmas season to accept the ultimate Christmas gift, the gift of eternal life, of eternal hope that can only come through a relationship with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we, um, as we celebrate the arrival of the great physician, the great healer of Jesus, of God in the flesh, of God with us, Lord, help remind us as we look forward to Christmas the gift that you have given us, the ultimate Christmas gift, the hope of the world, the gift of eternal salvation. And Lord, if we're here this morning and we already call ourselves a follower of Christ, Lord, help us to understand what that looks like for our lives. How should we be out in the world? How should we be living in in the fray? How do we be out among just ordinary, everyday people just in the same way that Jesus did? And if we're here and we're just wondering what this whole Christianity thing is all about, Lord, help us remind us it is not about a religious to-do list. Help remind us there is nothing we can do to earn your favor. Simply by believing in Jesus, we can have hope and have eternal life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.